Um, so growing up as a young person in San Diego, driving around from time to time, uh, being in the car with my parents, we would pass this cemetery. This is Fort Rosecrans Cemetery overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean there, um, just by Cabrillo National Monument in, in San Diego. And I can remember one time my parents commenting as we passed this cemetery where there's just acres of these white tombstones, almost as as far as as you can see, just over the hills, all of these burial sites. My parents commenting as we're going along, we're looking out at the ocean, hey, hey, let's look over here for a moment. This is the impact of war. That's what war does. And as a young person, I knew that that wars happened, of course, um, but on, on this particular day when we were driving past this cemetery, it, it hit me. I, I was touched by the awful reality of war. And as I looked over these acres of neatly placed white marble markers, I felt sick inside. As I realized, I started to realize how many people war has affected. So with Memorial Day being coming up Monday, I thought it would be appropriate to consider the numbers of those servicemen and women who have died in battle, died at the the place of war, and uh, in in our recent history, fighting for our country. So according to the Department of Veterans Affairs, in World War I, 53,402 service members died. World War II, 291,557 individuals died. United States service members Korean War, 36,574, and then Vietnam, 58,220. I just select, there were, there were more wars, but I just wanted for us to, to just pause for a moment and to consider these numbers because each one of these numbers, of course, it represents a person. Many of these people just beginning the prime of life, young people, these are people, had they been able to come back to their, their home, would have been leaders in their community, people that would have blessed the community in all different ways, whether through business or some form of service. These, these were individuals that, that had their best years ahead of them, and because of war, their lives were snuffed out. Of course, in addition to these numbers, there are the thousands more who were wounded, thousands more who were disabled, thousands more who were broken emotionally as a result of these wars. There will be empty seats at dinner tables as families gather together. As a result of these wars, there will be single-parent homes. There will be children who won't know a parent growing up. Memorial Day calls us to remember these great acts of sacrifice by the service members of our country. Their lives inspire us, and they help us to value what we have. But the fact is, is that there would be no war. There would be none of this if it wasn't for the existence of evil in our world. Evil is the cause of death. Evil is the cause of this horrible, damaging, painful thing that we know to be war. We call war. And I would guess most people would say today that they would be opposed to evil. I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say that today you you would be opposed to evil. Perhaps some of you would even say, I hate evil. But even though we might be sincerely in opposition to evil, the the, the problem, rather, the problem is there are some forms of evil that we like quite a lot. 
Society pays millions of dollars every year for entertainment that is frankly evil. There are movies, there are TV programs, there's music, there's video games that glamorize people hurting other people. I would say that's evil. Like whether, you, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in the Bible or not, we, why are we glamorizing people hurting other people? But you might say that you're against evil. We might say as a society we're against evil, but there's no shortage of people lining up to pay to watch this stuff, to pay to consume this. And it's not just restricted to what we watch or listen to. Chances are every one of us struggles with some sort of health habit that hurts us and probably hurts other people. Whether it has to do with diet or exercise, we naturally have this liking for things that damage us and as a result keep us from being of service to other people who really need our service. We could make a long list of evil practices that we enjoy doing because we're naturally selfish. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. We're that way by by nature and and we don't outgrow that as as we get older. And selfishness is the essence of evil. You trace it all the way down. Selfishness results in pain and suffering and death. Every time. Breaks relationships. And since evil causes pain and death, it's only reasonable. I mean, it only makes rational sense that we would avoid evil if it it causes this, this pain and, and, and this death. Unfortunately, even though we know this, we still struggle to avoid evil, even when we want to avoid evil. So today what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at a teaching from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament that shows us not only how we can avoid evil, but it goes even deeper than that, how we can actually come to the point where we will hate evil. title of the message this morning is Remembering Greatness. And before we open the Word of God, I just want to invite you to pause with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we need to hear a word from you. We do unreasonable things. We make choices, deliberate choices, that hurt ourselves and hurt others. That's crazy. Please bring some sanity to our lives through your word. Open our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. It's powerful powerful teaching here in Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 13. Now, Proverbs 8 describes wisdom in a really interesting way. It doesn't describe wisdom as some abstract thing that's out there that you should make yourself acquainted with so you can live a better life. It goes beyond that, and it personifies wisdom. It describes wisdom as 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 a person, as an individual. And as people are gathering on the road, it paints this picture here in Proverbs 8, as people gather on the road on the thoroughfares of life, as they come together to do business, as they interact with one another, we have this picture in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is calling out. It's crying out to people as they gather together in public places or as they gather together in different social environments. It calls out and it invites them to make those choices that lead to life and prosperity. Now, the context here, it, it indicates that wisdom's call is urgent. It's not, a, it's not a passive call. Hey, if you have a moment, listen. No, it's, it's saying, listen. Listen up. You need to hear this. It's an urgent call. And the reason for that is, we look at chapter 7, is that wisdom's voice is not the only voice that is calling out. There are other, there's another voice that's calling out. 
It's speaking to people. And this is the voice of temptation. It's represented by the person of an adulterous woman. This is what chapter 7 is about. And in contrast to the voice of wisdom who calls out in public places, the the voice of the temptress has something to hide, and and she speaks to the naive. She she singles out her prey, and she goes and and she whispers suggestions to to individuals that that she seems like she can can get through to. And she, she seduces them with these promises of life and of excitement. And when people fall for her sales pitch, Proverbs 7.22 says that she leads them like an ox to the slaughter. They think that everything is great, that they're going to have this great experience. They're going to die, and they don't know it. To save us from the seductive voice of evil that we so often fall to. Listen to what the voice of wisdom says in Proverbs 8, verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. This is strong language. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. It says, I hate pride. He goes on to say, I hate arrogance. I hate evil behavior. I hate perverse or irrational speech. Sometimes the biblical language can be translated different ways. And and so we might look at this and say, well, maybe another translation would would take the the, the Hebrew uh, text and, and translate it differently into English. But I looked at over a dozen different translations, and they all have this straightforward statement, I hate. Hate. That's that's the word that, that is used here. It's unambiguous. Now, to hate something, to hate evil, it it means that we hate all of it. It's a categorical opposition to the existence of evil. The desire of hate is to put to an end, to to cause something to cease to exist. And this is what it means to to, to fear the Lord. To, To follow after God is to hate evil. When verse 13 says, I hate pride and arrogance and evil behavior, this is not the expression of a of a human opinion. This is not Solomon saying, this is my opinion about evil. This is not some wise person back in Bible times sharing their opinion with us. Verse 12 indicates who is speaking here. Look at what it says there in verse 12. Who is speaking? It says, I, wisdom, say these things. Wisdom who who dwells with prudence. That's careful forethought. And, And I possess this knowledge and discretion. Who possesses knowledge? Who is this talking about? I, wisdom. Who Who is this really describing? When verse 12 says I, this phrase, I, wisdom, which probably all of your texts say, because it's pretty straightforward there, I, wisdom, Bible scholars call this a verbless clause. Now, I know I'm geeking out a little bit here, but just follow me. A verbless clause. And this is significant because this type of speech, Bible scholars identify as speech that God uses. This is how God describes himself. Before he gave the law in Exodus 20, he says, the, Bible, the English Bible says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But the actual wording there is, I, the Lord your God. It's a verbless clause. This is the, this is the type of language that God uses. I, wisdom. It's, it's language of divinity. Later in Proverbs 8, it says that wisdom existed before creation and that wisdom was actively present when this world was created. It's very interesting because John 
the follower of Jesus, disciple, he uses language like this when he describes Jesus in John chapter 1. In verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. Verse 3 says, all things came into being by him. And in John 1.14, it says that the word was personified in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh. It became a person. There's this direct link between the language describing Jesus and the language describing wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. Now, usually when Christians describe God, when we want to talk about God, one word comes to mind, right? If someone were to ask you, give me one word to describe God, what would you say? Right, yeah, we, we all say that, that God is love. But Proverbs 8.13 implies that for love to be love, love must also hate. And that doesn't, doesn't often, it's not often a description that we think of when we think of God. Oh, God hates. But if you love something, the natural response to anything that would harm the object of your love has to be hate. Otherwise, it's not love. Let's think about that for a moment. Here's an example. If you love someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, and I know many of you have experienced this, diagnosed with cancer, and you, and you have watched your loved one, your dearly beloved, you've watched them as they've suffered with this disease, You've seen how this disease has sucked the life right out of this loved one. If you've seen them go from being healthy and strong to being confined to a bed where they're barely able to breathe, their, their sleep is fitful, and, and when they're awake, they're in misery. If you've witnessed that before, there's no way that you can feel anything in your heart but hatred towards cancer. My mom died of cancer. I saw her go through this. And if every cancer cell were obliterated from this planet, never to come back again, I would have no remorse. I would be celebrating because I hate cancer. I see what it does. I absolutely hate it. There's no part in my heart that says, well, I kind of like cancer some days. Like, I hate it. And that's the way God feels, and that's the way God responds to evil. He absolutely hates it. Why? Because it hurts those he loves. He hates it. This is why God says, I hate evil. It's fully appropriate for him to say that. And he goes on to describe what evil is there in Proverbs 8.13. He says, I hate pride. I hate arrogance. I hate evil behavior. I hate perverse, irrational speech. I hate those things. Why? Because all of these things hurt us. They damage our life. And yet as I look at this list, I have to say that I'm guilty. Look at that list. Have you done any of those things? Have you ever been proud? <laughs> have you ever, ever done ev something evil, evil behavior? Arrogance, perverse speech. We're guilty. Evil is completely irrational because we all have this desire to live, and yet if you're like me, you've all chosen to do things that are evil, which cause pain and hurt and death. It doesn't make any sense. So how do we hate what hurts us and what hurts others? Proverbs 8.13, it tells us, very first phrase there, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. This is how we hate evil. It's through the fear of the Lord. 
To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Now, now to be clear, this is not saying that if you are afraid enough of God, that you won't do bad things. It's not saying that. Because people who are scared of God still do evil things, right? We can can think of a lot of uh, examples of that. Being fearful of God, it might give you pause before you do something evil, but it's not going to keep you. It it won't change you on the inside. Proverbs 8.13 is talking about so much more than behavior here. It's not saying that the fear of the Lord is to not do evil. It's not saying that. It's talking about a change of heart. It goes deeper into our thoughts, into our feelings. It says to fear the Lord is, is not to just avoid it, not to just not do it. To fear the Lord is to hate it passionately, categorically. So how do we experience this kind of fear? This fear of the Lord that changes us on the inside, to categorically hate fear. How do we experience that? Please turn with me uh, to this verse, Exodus 14, 31. This is one of the best examples that I can think of in the Bible uh, that shows us how we can experience the fear of the Lord. As you're going there, uh, I'll just give you some context here. This describes Israel's final deliverance from Egypt. If you remember, after the ten plagues came down and just brought Egypt to its knees, they asked Pharaoh, the, the leader of Egypt, to ask Israel to leave. But shortly after this, he had a change of mind. And by this time, the children of Israel are on the shores of the Red Sea. And the geography of that area basically prevented them from going anywhere else. They're stuck. It's kind of like a dead-end road there. They're on the shores of the Red Sea. And they look up and they see the army of Egypt coming their way. And they perceive what is about to happen. And they're, they're thinking, this is not good. And the Bible tells us that they begin to say this. Why did we leave Egypt? Moses, why did you bring us out here? Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us? We wish that we had not left. In other words, they were wishing they could be back in slavery. And then God does something amazing. He parts the Red Sea. And the people of Israel cross. And I can just imagine that as they're crossing, they're on the other side and they're looking at this pathway that God has made in the Red Sea. And they see the army of Egypt. They're like, hey, we're going after them. And they start to come into the Red Sea. And I can just imagine the people of Israel, their hearts are pounding. Here are their captors. And they're coming towards them closer and closer. I'm sure their hands were sweaty. And just as they, they're, they're coming towards them, the Bible says that God closes the Red Sea. This army was very powerful. Israel did not stand a chance against this army. This army would have easily overthrown them. And in a moment, God ends their existence. Never again would they be troubled by the army of Egypt. It's done. They were free. And in Exodus 14, 31, the Bible records the people's response. Listen to what it says. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, what did the people do? The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servants. Now, when it says that they feared the Lord, it's, it's talking about this awe of God. Like we say God is awesome. We say a lot of things are awesome, but really that only applies to God rightly. They had this awe of God, and they had this adoration of God. They're like, oh, look at what just happened. This is unbelievable. They feared the Lord. 
This experience completely changed how they thought and felt. They went from saying, oh, we, should, we shouldn't have left Egypt. We, we wish that we were slaves. After they had this experience of fearing the Lord, they're now thinking about the promised land. They're thinking about the land that flows with milk and honey. And to make sure that they never forgot this experience, Moses didn't just record it. We read in chapter 15 that he wrote a song. And every time they would sing this song, they would relive this experience of fearing the Lord, of remembering his awesome power, adoring him for his incredible greatness. And as long as this greatness of God was fresh in the minds of the people, they didn't choose to do evil. But whenever they stopped remembering, they were soon seduced by the voice of evil. Now, Seventh-day Adventist Christians are big on knowing the Bible, and that is a good thing. This is the foundation of faith, that knowledge. But knowledge alone will not keep you from doing evil. We can know a lot and still do evil. And the reason for it is this. We will still choose to do evil, even if if we have the whole Bible memorized, if we are spiritually hungry. If we're hungry inside, if we're empty inside, if we're not filled up and satisfied, we will even choose to do that which we don't want to do, that which is evil, which will hurt us and other people. In my last two years in high school, I I spent at boarding academy. If you've ever been at boarding academy, you probably can relate to this story. Um, being at boarding academy means that your meal times are regulated by the cafeteria. And whenever the cafeteria was open, we were there. We ate as much as we could. But at night, I don't know what happened in the girls' dorm, but in the guys' dorm at night, guys got hungry. And one of the foods of choice was this. <laughs> these ramen noodles. Now, I'm not talking about the nice ramen noodles. You can go to a restaurant. They, have these, they probably made them there, you know, and it's really high-quality ingredients. These ramen noodles that we ate were— they probably barely qualified as food. You could buy a package for 10 cents, and they basically had no nutritional value. And yet, we would want to consume them because we were hungry, right? And as I think back on that, I I think, man, the reason, the only times I ate ramen was when I was desperately hungry. After Thanksgiving dinner, after a good home-cooked meal, or after a a great meal in, in a restaurant, I can never remember thinking, you know what would really hit the spot right now? Some noodles with no nutritional value. No, never thought of that. Why? Because because when we're satisfied, we don't want anything else. We don't want, want something of less value. The same is true when the voice of temptation calls us to choose to do evil. When our souls are well nourished because we are keeping fresh in our minds the greatness of God on our behalf to save us, then the temptation to do evil loses its power. Temptations to do evil, they, they promise life. They promise excitement. They promise good things. But let us never forget that this is what evil causes. This is the result of evil. We have Memorial Day because of the result of evil. Yes, we honor the, the incredible acts of sacrifice and, and the valor and the courage and, and the love for country that led our servicemen and servicewomen to make the ultimate sacrifice. But they never would have had to do it if it wasn't for evil. That is the true face of sin. Whenever we're tempted by something, say, oh man, I know this is wrong, but oh, it looks so good. This is the final outcome. It's death. Let's not, let's not be deceived. Let's, let's speak the truth. That's, that's what it is. God hates this. He hates evil because it kills us. But the only way our hearts will be like God's is if we have what Proverbs calls the fear 
of the Lord. And this is what happens when we relive the goodness of God, the greatness of God in our life. And the way we relive it is by remembering it. Remember God's power in your life. Remember how he has died to save you. Remember all of the good things that he surrounds your life with to remind you that he loves you. Remember that he has forgiven you. Remember that he shows you grace even when you do not do what he wants you to do. And and, and even though you might be off to just want to live your own life, he still shows you grace. He shows you grace when you've resisted his love. Remember that, that he delights in you. And that he's constantly at work to satisfy you with his goodness. Today, our souls do not have to be desperately hungry. We don't have to be vulnerable to the voice of the seductress who wants to lead us as an ox to the slaughter. We can be satisfied with him and temptations can lose their power over us. We can categorically hate evil. And everything that hurts our relationship with God and everything that hurts others, if we remember his greatness towards us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for being distracted. Forgive us for having such a poor memory. And it's not really memory. We just, we just uh, lose sight of what you have truly done for us and are, are doing for us. Open our minds. Give us the good sense, God, to look to you when we are tempted, to remember you before we're tempted, what you've done for us. May we desire nothing else but you and place within us a heart like yours to hate evil. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.